So tonight I switch gears and um, I'm talking about Coleridge. For, for my thinking tonight, we're going to stick with this lime tree bow my prison and the reason I've decided to stick with that is because I believe previously at Gospel Conversations I spoke almost exclusively about frost at midnight. So I thought I should speak about something different. And, and I wanted to kind of ask a different question. So frost at midnight and lime tree bower together with another poem, which I won't talk about tonight, are in, in a group of Coleridge's conversations called The Conversation Poems. So if you're ever reading about it online, they're called The Conversation Poems. I'll talk about that in a minute, why that's important. But I think I should, I began the last talk by, by first of all, offering my thanks and my indebtedness to my students. So I need to do that again, <laughs> because whenever I talk, I'm bringing with me classrooms of amazing minds and so know that, that behind this is a group of Skeggs girls and a group of Scots boys who, who think beautifully about poetry. But also my great teacher, William Christie, I heartily recommend him to you as a, there, there is no way of really coming, to, in my mind, coming to grips with Coleridge without reading Will Christie's work. And I hope you'll see why, at the end, why I am announcing my indebtedness to other people before I begin talking about Coleridge. That will remind me if I forget to explain that. Why, why offering my indebtedness is actually central to what I'm about to say about Coleridge. So first of all, I wanna say that Coleridge is, is well known enough and Lime Tree Bow My Prison is well known enough that you don't need to sit here and listen to me. A quick Google will tell you some things. You can buy Will Christie's book you can buy Malcolm Geit's book, which I also recommend to you. So that begs the question, what can I offer tonight, right, by way of something interesting? What question can I answer or open that will shed light on, on something about the way we can come to know God, and in particular through poetry? The last time I spoke, I spoke about the ways in which poetry can offer us a kind of communion with God, because it's a sensory form and so it participates in that great mystery of the incarnation. We can participate, I suppose, in that, in that mystery, that central mystery that is the cornerstone of the gospel. But so tonight what I want to do is actually press into this word participates because to me this unlocks something. There's a particular reading of Coleridge, I think, that it unlocks that, this word participation. What is it that reading poetry, writing poetry can do to particularly and uniquely tutor us into apprehending the mystery that is the incarnation? Why not write an essay about it? Because Coleridge did. He wrote essays, so did T.S. Eliot, so did Levitov. So did all of these poets. They were magnificent essay writers. I suppose I'm wondering why go to the trouble, and it was trouble, of writing poetry. What is it particularly that poetry offers us about participating in the incarnation? So I spoke about Harwood and Levitov's view that because poetry needs just, not just our heads but our ears to apprehend meaning means that we go some way to understanding, I suppose, that to apprehend what Jesus did on the cross, we actually need to be in our bodies and not out of them. And the mystery of those little, little quotidian moments like doing the washing up I should just dispel any myth here that, that Coleridge, I don't think, did very much washing up. His <laughs> poor suffering wife, Sarah Coleridge, did most of it. So that, that's not where he's going to lead us. But, but somewhere 
just, I mean, all, all human beings are failed human beings, right? But he has something to offer us that I think we can all take away, whether we do the washing up or not. Tonight, I want to ask of the poet Coleridge, what can he tell us about the mystery of knowing God? So I want to start by reading the poem in front of you. And like I say to all my classes, when we read poetry, you must listen with your ears first and your head second. Listen to how it sounds. Listen to its rhythms. We'll talk about what it means, but really you have to sense how it feels for this to be any good at all. And if I can just remind us of that important lesson that Harwood taught us and that Levitov teaches us, to feel something is not some kind of second-rate apprehension of what it is to be human. It is first-rate because that is the unique good of being a human being. So let's read this lime tree bough, my prison. Well, they are gone and here must I remain, this lime tree bough, my prison. I have lost beauties and feelings such as would have been most sweet to my remembrance even when age had dimmed mine eyes to blindness. They, meanwhile, friends, whom I never more may meet again on springy heath along the hilltop edge, wander in gladness and wind down perchance to that still roaring dell of which I told. The roaring dell, all wooded, narrow, deep and only speckled by the midday sun where its slim trunk the ash from rock to rock flings arching like a bridge, that branchless ash, unsunned and damp, whose few poor yellow leaves ne'er tremble in the gale, yet tremble still, fanned by the waterfall. And there, my friends, behold the dark green file of long lank weeds, that all at once a most fantastic sight, still nod and drip beneath the dripping edge of the blue clay stone. Now my friends emerge beneath the wide, wide heaven and view again the many steeple-tracked magnificent of hilly fields and meadows and the sea with some fair bark perhaps whose sails light up the slip of smooth clear blue betwixt two isles of purple shadow. Yes, they wander on in gladness all, but thou methinks most glad, my gentle-hearted Charles, for thou hast pined and hungered after nature many a year in the great city pent, winning thy way with sad yet patient soul through evil and pain and strange calamity. Ah, slowly sink behind the western ridge, thou glorious sun. Shine in the slant beams of the sinking orb, ye purple heath flowers, richly aburn ye clouds. Live in the yellow light, ye distant groves, and kindle, thou blue ocean. So my friend, struck with deep joy, may stand as I have stood, silent with swimming sense, yea, gazing around on the wide landscape, gaze till all doth seem less gross than bodily, and of such hues as veil the almighty spirit, when yet he makes spirits perceive his presence. A delight comes sudden on my heart, and I am glad as I myself were there. Nor in this bower, this little lime tree bower, have I not marked much that has soothed me. Pale beneath the blaze hung the transparent foliage, and I watched some broad and sunny leaf, and loved to see the shadow of the leaf and stem above dappling its sunshine. And that walnut tree was richly tinged, and a deep radiance lay full on the ancient ivy, which usurps those fronting elms, and now with blackest mass makes their dark branches gleam a lighter hue through the late twilight 
And though now the bat wheels silent by and not a swallow twitters, yet still the solitary humble bee sings in the bean flower. Henceforth, I shall know that nature ne'er deserts the wise and pure. No plot so narrow be but nature there, no waste so vacant, but may well employ each faculty of sense and keep the heart awake to love and beauty. And sometimes tis well to be bereft of promised good, that we may lift the soul and contemplate with lively joys the joys we cannot share. My gentle-hearted Charles, when the last rook beat its straight path along the dusky air homewards, I blessed it, deeming its black wing, now a dim speck, now vanishing in light, had crossed the mighty orb's dilated glory while thou stoodst gazing, or, when all was still, flew creaking o'er thy head, and had a charm for thee, my gentle-hearted Charles, to whom no sound is dissonant, which tells of life. It's beautiful, isn't it? Even before we begin reading it, but just the sound of it, like it's so beautiful. It's even more beautiful when you start to see the patterns, like it's just, it's just mind-blowing. Can I first say, before we begin reading this together, that I think what attracts me to Coleridge is that what he theologically unfolds for me is the telos to which I move, the end to which I move. What he's unfolding here, and I hope you'll see with me as we read, that his image of reconciliation here in this poem is the whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think he both unfolds it and performs it. I know that probably won't mean much in those kind of lecturish words, but I hope at the end it will. Okay, so what I wanna to do tonight is to read through this poem together to see if we can unpack it together. There's a point to us reading it together. A very, very good point. Remind me if I don't come back to it. So I said that Coleridge might help us to see how we can participate in the mystery of creation and in the mystery of the incarnation and the resurrection, the bodiedness of who we are. But this poem, interestingly, begins with the sense of non-participation. Did you hear that? It begins in a big fat sulk, a big fat sulk. You'll probably know that Coleridge, along with his friend William Wordsworth, had a clear sense that God spoke through creation. I remember as a girl in year 12, when dad was trying to drag me through the HSC and my teacher was telling me about pantheism. Have you all heard about that? Pan is, I suppose, nature. So we're worshiping nature and we reach God through nature. With due respect to my year 12 English teacher, I actually think that's a really thin reading as you're about to see. Suffice it to say that Coleridge and his mates including Wordsworth, his sister Dorothy, had all moved to the Lakes District in order to get away from the city and to commune with God in nature. That much is true. The other interesting fact is that they were being spied on by anti-revolutionaries who thought that they were about to kind of set up flares and let the French, the French revolutionaries arrive and kind of invade England. It's quite interesting. There was actually a spy following Coleridge at this time. Anyway, so this poem begins, this lime tree bower, my prison. There's the sulk. I'm outside in a beautiful place and I'm in a prison. The more I read Coleridge, the more I'm really thankful that this 
venerated, incredibly intelligent man is vulnerable enough that I don't feel so alone when I'm in a, a sulk. He shows us that ugly side of human petulance and self-pity. I know I'm not alone here, right? Coleridge is sulking because he has a scalded foot. These are the historical, historical context behind the poem. He's got a scalded foot and he can't join his mates for a walk. They're living in the beautiful Lakes District, as I've said. Coleridge and his friends, I'll name them, Tom Poole, Dorothy Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, Charles Lamb, Mary Lamb. They've teamed up together to, to I suppose it's a bit like a hippie commune, I suppose, a kind of 18th century version of Melrose Place. And they'd gone for a walk and left Coleridge behind. To make matters worse, his poor suffering wife, Sarah Coleridge, whom he did not think was a part of his cool group, went with them. So he was really by himself. And they leave Coleridge behind in a state of high dudgeon. And you can hear the salt, can't you? I asked you to listen with your ears. In the opening word, well, right? Look at it. Well, they are gone. And here I remain. And you can see the contrast between the they and the I. It's non-participation. It's almost comical then, right? When he looks around at his beautiful surroundings and he calls it hyperbolically, it's a prison. This lime tree bower, my prison. His sulk has reached like fever pitch, right? As he thinks about them gambling about without him. They meanwhile, friends whom I never more may meet again. <laughs> On springy heat, along the hilltop edge, wander in gladness and wind down perchance to that still roaring dell of which I told really rubbing salt into the wound here, they followed Coleridge's suggestion of what bushwalk they could go on, but he's not allowed to go with them. And they've left him there. So they're following his verbal instructions, away they've gone. So we begin in non-participation, in loneliness, in a sense of being fenced off. In the experience of being alone and cut off and sulking about it. Now, a careful reader will see straight away that there's a certain paradox here, right? Because in all of this, this is a conversation poem. This stands in contradistinction to the kind of poetry that went on in the century beforehand, where formal verse with formal rhymes and formal rhythms dominated the way poetry was written. Coleridge came along and he wrote poetry in this really approachable, conversational kind of a way. It seems quite casual. It's not, FYI. If you have a look at the rhythms and the rhymes, it's actually very, very carefully constructed, but it gives this effect of being really approachable. So there's a sense of a conversational offering from the poet. And in a conversation, someone speaks, listens, and then responds, right? So the question, we then beg the question, who's he, who's he speaking to then, if this is a conversation poem? Where's the to and the fro? And the answer is, of course, us. He's speaking to us, right? So he's, he's made this kind of communion over here in the corner around his sulkiness, if you will. We are the reader's intimate. I'm there borrowing a, a phrase from Will Christie who calls us, he makes it an intimate out of the reader or a close friend. More on that later and the importance of that. Anyway, the self-pity seems to drag Coleridge down and I'm using that word down on purpose if you come back to the poem. Down's a really important word at this point. The rhythms of these first lines are they're like torpid, they're tired with long vowels, right, which slow the reading down 
to the level of the sulk. The roaring dell, all wooded, narrow, deep. Can you hear it now? And only speckled by the midday sun. That's on purpose, right? Because if you add them all up, there's a pattern there. They're elongated and they're hollow, like the poet's soul. So much so that I think here we begin to see that dell and its accompanying darkness. Did you, did you see those, those dark images all the way through that first stanza there? It's only speckled by the sun and it's all wooded and narrow and deep. That's an analogy for the poet's soul at this point. He's having a sulk. He's in the dark. He cannot reach anyone. It's a sign of the poet's being at this point in time. And one I think like, well, today I spent some time in the darkness. I don't know about you. But then something strange happens. The poet's gaze sharpens halfway through that first stanza and his attention to detail becomes very, very focused. So let's read that, that second bit there, right? So after the sulk, he repeats the roaring dell. Can you see that and read that with me? The roaring dell, all wooded, narrow, deep, and only speckled by the midday sun, where its slim trunk, the ash from rock to rock, flings arching like a bridge, that branchless ash, unsunned and damp, whose few poor yellow leaves ne'er tremble in the gale, yet tremble still, fanned by the waterfall. Can you feel his gaze going in and down and down, further into the dell, close onto the leaves on the ash, right? It, it, it's almost like a, the aperture on his focus becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. So, but, but it goes down along with his mood, but then something happens. In this moment of dark stillness, the poet then imagines his friends. There my friends behold the dark green file of long, lank weeds. Whereas before in the first half of the stanza, I am having a sulk in my lime tree, in my lime tree. Now my imagination has gone to where they might be and my attention has become quite focused on what it is they might see. We are still with the poet having reached the bottom. But then something has happened on the way down. When the poet's imagination started to take in the remembered and the imagined moment. Did you, did you hear the verbs change? Earlier in the first stanza, we have all these modifiers in and around the verbs. Sorry about all of the technical language, but you can, it's a way of, I suppose, appreciating it, but just what a genius he is. It's wind down perchance, right? So perhaps, he says, and such as would have been. There's all of these kind of modifiers to suggest, oh, this might have happened and that might have happened and so on. And then once the poet starts to pay attention to what nature would have looked like, right down to the leaf, the yellow leaf on the ash, then the verbs begin to register in the present tense. It's really interesting. Have a look. He says, the ash flings the yellow leaves Tremble still, my friends, behold. Did you hear how the, the register really shifts there? And the weeds nod and drip, right? And with that shift, the momentum of the poem changes and it finds life. You probably would have heard when I read it, you could hear the momentum pick up when the verbs shifted. So I suppose my question is a reader Okay, so I've registered a bit of an upswing in terms of, and I mean to say upswing, because we've gone down. 
where has the upswing in momentum come from? Where has it come from? And if you pay attention to the poem, if we have a look here, it's the moment he starts paying attention to the roaring dell. It's the moment that his imagination pays attention to creation. He mentions roaring dell twice, once in a sulk, the other when his imagination shifts over into paying attention what it, what it would have looked like, if that makes any sense. And then, just like the rhythms of conversation, the backwards and forwards of conversation, unlike what we're doing now, the movement of the poem's images goes from downward to upward, which mirrors, I suppose, the momentum of the poem. He says, now, this is the second stanza, I love this bit. <laughs> now my friends emerge beneath the wide, wide heaven. Can you hear that? Right, so we get the narrowing down into the dell and then woof, he's imagining that they're moving up and have a vista now before them. Now my friends emerge beneath the wide, wide heaven and view again the many steepled tract, magnificent of hilly fields and meadows. He's still imagining where they're going. We are now with the poet as he imagines his friends having shed his self-pity. Where did that go? Right? The sulk's gone. Let's ask where that went in a minute. So engulfed is he by the details he imagines. We're reminded it almost feels a bit like a painter, right? He uses words like, if you look at the second stanza there, perhaps we'll do this. And yes, there they are. Can you see that? And that sense of immediacy, you almost get a sense of a painter going, yes, I'll put a bit of colour there and a bit there, right? Almost as if we're alongside him as he's creating. This little interesting moment, and I want to wait upon it, press into it a little bit, where the tract is called many steepled. Now, I think that's interesting, don't you? Why use the word steepled? Why do that? I mean, you could call it many things. And like I always tell my students, poets don't waste words or ink. It's too hard to write poetry. So the word steepled suggests something to me here about what it is that's the impetus that's driving the poet's imagination, that is driving the poet's attention. That the natural world, because it is God's creation, has sharpened his attention and turned that self-pity into something that's now moving outward, right? The world is the steeple, right? The world is this new cathedral. And then we have, this is almost my favourite part of the poem. I love it so much. Creation becomes a cathedral and then we've got this lovely little image of a boat. I'm going to read it. Go with me. With some fair bark, perhaps, whose sails light up the slip of smooth, clear blue betwixt isles of purple shadow. Let me read it again. With some fair bark, a bark is a boat, with some fair bark, perhaps, whose sails light up the slip of smooth, clear blue betwixt two isles of purple shadow. The boat's sails catch the sun and not holding the light or hogging it, throw the light onto the silken water. If you catch that, right? Go sun, sails, water, lighting it all up, right? Each element in the image is dependent upon the other for this glorious light show. If I can remind you, 
What we're looking for is Coleridge's vision of participation in God's creation. Just as the boat reflects the sun's rays, so the water reflects the boat's reflection. Do you want me to say that again? It's a bit tricky. So the boat reflects the sun's rays, so the water reflects the boat's reflection. So the poet has begun to reflect God's glorious creation and turns that reflection not upon himself, but upon his friends. It goes from creation to friends to God. Participation, yes, but I'm going to add one more word. Not just participation, but transformation. It's a light show, right? Better than vivid. And now we've come to the middle of the poem. Now, seasoned readers of Genesis will know that the centre of a Genesis story is critical. I've spoken before at, at Gospel Conversations about the chiasm. As Western readers, what we tend to do, and I'm an unashamed Western reader, I am one, but what we tend to do in the habits of our reading is we tend to go to the end for the moral of the story, yeah? I was teaching the film Babel to a bunch of Year 12 boys and I thought I'd love to show them where the story of Babel comes from because they didn't know. So I printed it out for them on a piece of A3. It's worth doing just for fun actually on an A3 piece of paper and then I said what pattern can you see and they said well they could see that the first verse and the last verse were the same and I said well that tells you something. That tells you that this is a chiasm. If the first and the last are mirrors then you're reading Hebrew scriptures. You're not reading a Western story, in which case you have to read it with respect to the way it's been structured. Just like if you were reading a Western story, you have to go to the end for the moral. Right. So I printed it out. And the thing is, if we read the story of Babel, and I know I'm repeating things I've said at other Gospel Conversations talk, but if you're reading the story of Babel as a Western reader, the moral we tend to get out of it is everybody should stop trying to strive to get to God and you're naughty men and women for even trying and that's why we all speak different languages and God punished us all, right? Am I right? Right. But if you read it chiastically, which is you get the first and the last verse and then the second and you go into the middle and where you go for the moral of the story is the middle bit, not the end. You go to the middle bit and the middle verse is this. And God came down to see what they were doing. So you get this almost maternal curiosity in what it is his people are doing. That's a completely different reading to the idea that God is some kind of draconian disciplinarian coming to splinter his people into different directions, right? It's a very different reading. So I think... What I'm trying to get at here is that we're going to see a similar thing here because when we read this whole poem, we've got Coleridge in the lime tree bower in the beginning and we've got Coleridge in the lime tree bower at the end. Immediately he is signalling to us, please read me like Genesis. Please read me like Genesis. And if we're going to read him like Genesis, then you've got to go to the middle to actually get the guts of what he's trying to say. And then my next question would be why? Poets don't just structure things for fun to be fancy. Like I said, they don't waste ink. It's too tiring and too exhausting to write good poetry. Why structure it like that? Why structure it like a Genesis story? We'll come back to that 
and I think probably it'll start occurring to you as we move to the next stanza. But anyway, we, let's go to the middle. We've come to the middle of the poem. I first, I, I do need to acknowledge that it was Will Christie who first pointed out to me that Coleridge's poems are shaped like a chiasm. Anyway, what does he say in the middle? Let's go to it. He says, yes, they wander on in gladness all, but thou, methinks, most glad. Who's thou? We started off with what? They and I, right? That dominant I, right? And now all of a sudden we've got this thou. But it's this tender-hearted address. It's not accusatory the way it was. It's this, and thou, methinks, most glad. And then here's the middle. My gentle-hearted Charles. My gentle-hearted Charles. All of a sudden, it is not we who are being addressed. It is his friend Charles. That's who's being addressed. And there's this intimacy in that address. I should say here that for those of you who don't know, Charles Lamb had a, a very sad story. His sister Mary Lamb was with him and he had been living in London and most unhappy there. A part of the reason for his unhappiness is that his sister in a fit of madness had killed their mother. And to avoid her being committed to a lunatic asylum, which as you can imagine in those times was not something that he wanted to commit a loved sister to at all, even though she had done this thing, he became her full-time carer. And so he turns to Charles, my gentle-hearted Charles, and now read the lines, for thou hast pined and hungered after nature many a year in the great city pent, winning thy way with sad yet patient soul through evil and pain and strange calamity. How those words shine then, right? How those words shine then. But what I think is interesting is who's been lost in all of this. Can you hear that? Where's Coleridge? The sulk's gone. That's certainly gone. It's this outward movement of love for his fellow brother. Right? So we go, if you follow where his attention goes, first of all, it's to that leaf, the branch, the leaf. Then it's to a group of friends. And then it sharpens again to one human being who is deserving of his empathy and of his love, my gentle-hearted Charles. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So that self-effacing love has actually overtaken his love for himself, if you can see that. It's been swallowed up, I suppose, in the attention, in the poet's attention to something other than himself. But let's read the next bit. My gentle-hearted Charles, and then we go to, sorry, and strange calamity. I want to start with ah, right? Okay, now listen and tell me where you've heard these words before. Ah, slowly sink behind the western ridge, thou glorious sun. Shine in the slant beams of the sinking orb, ye purple heath flowers. Richly aburn, ye clouds. Live in the yellow light, ye distant groves, and kindle, thou blue ocean. So my friends, struck with deep joy, may stand as I have stood silent with swimming sense, yea, gazing around on the wide landscape, gaze till all does seem less gross than bodily, and of such hues as veil the almighty spirit, when yet he makes spirits perceive his presence. Did you hear it? It's Genesis. Did you hear it? Be, son, <laughs> right? The poet's language starts to mimic, not mimic, actually, inhabit, the words of the creator 
And if I can take you back to Genesis, and I know Dad's spoken a lot about this at Gospel Conversations, the, the heartbeat, the method by which God creates is not his muscle might, but his language. God spoke and it was so. God spoke and there was light. And then he brought the animals to see what human beings would name them, right? Here is Coleridge naming, be for my friend, right? So he's participating in this act of creation. Now you might see why he is mimicking the structure of Genesis. Now you might see why he's going back to those patriarchal stories and to those mythical stories in the first half of Genesis because this idea of the genesis of being is central to what this poem is about. So I just want to back up a bit because I think I've missed a few things. The poet is using the language of Genesis as God made the earth because here the poet is making just as he made in your minds as you read it. Did you all see it? He makes a vision and he begins to participate in his own vision. He gets excited about it. Can you hear the uplift of momentum? Even as the momentum picks up and that drumbeat of creation made incarnate in the rhythm or made flesh in the rhythm. Remember I had suggested that the ash was and, and the, the dell was somehow a metaphor for the poet's sad soul. Do you remember that? It was like a, an image or a representation of how sad the poet was. And we most certainly saw that the, the prison of the lime tree was actually a metaphor or an image of his own existential angst, his own kind of solipsistic imprisonment within himself. And yet here, connected to nature, nature connects him to a friend which finally connects him to God. Be world, he seems to say. So my friend, struck with deep joy, may stand as I have stood, silent with swimming sense. Did you hear that beautiful sibilance, silent with swimming sense, kind of captures that moment of transformation. Gaze till all does seem less gross than bodily. I'd like to suggest here that something extraordinary has happened and I'll link it back to Harwood. Where in the first stanza, the poet, here is the experience and here is my image of it. Yeah, here's my sad sack self and there's the prison that represents it. Here the poet has actually walked through the image and been transformed by that image. Remember the poet himself has not been anywhere, right? He hasn't been anywhere. He's a scalded foot, he can't walk. But as he imaginatively moves into the image he himself creates, he himself is transformed. Do you see that? So it almost becomes sacramental. The image here becomes sacramental. It performs something on the participant. Just as creation lives, so does the poet's image. It is not inanimate creation, but the veil of the almighty spirit. Now, I don't know how many of you have detected, you might not have, but a little bit of a triune movement there, you'd be correct. Let's just pay a little bit like very close attention here. The poet is prompted first of all by his deep attention to creation. That's the first thing that happens, which then prompts his deep attention to Charles. Note that directs that tender address to his friend at the point of the chiasm, my tender hearted Charles. And that prompts his attention to the almighty spirit. Did you see how that worked? One, two, three. Nature, his friends and to God. 
and I'm reminded of my own instruction to my students, always pay attention to why a poet has chosen to use this or that structure. I've already suggested that Genesis is central to the poem and in Genesis we're given a tripartite promise and I'm here indebted to my great teacher Ian Proven, a tripartite promise. If any of you know anything about the, the promises that are given to God's people, they are threefold. I will be your God, I will give you a land and you'll be the father of many. I will be your God, I will give you a land and you will be the father of many. A community of people. So creation, brotherhood and God. Let me put this another way. You'll be grafted back into the earth from which you have been broken. You will be grafted back into each other after you have murdered and hurt each other and I will graft you back into me. That's the Abrahamic covenant as I understand it. That is what Jesus' death gives us. You will participate once more. You will forget yourself, right? You will become shalom, connected. And the pulse of this poem is the pulse of that Abrahamic covenant of connectedness given back to the human being who's been isolated and therefore hemorrhaging his own humanity with that disconnection. But then something else happens, right? You'd think that'd be enough, wouldn't you? being given the Abrahamic covenant, wow, (laughs) you know, to be lost, silent with swimming sense. To me, that would be enough, right? To be sort of swallowed up in the magnificence of God's creation. I'd be good if Coleridge had stopped there, but he doesn't. That's not it at all. That's not where he stops. Should we keep going? The poet then completes the chiasm. He comes back to himself and the little lime tree bower. Except it has also been transformed just as he has been transformed by that self-effacing love. Everything has been transformed. A delight comes sudden on my heart and I am glad as I myself were there. Nor in this bower, this little lime tree bower, have I not marked much that has soothed me. Hang on a second. Three stanzas ago he was complaining it was a prison. Now there is much that has soothed me. So the connection to nature, the connection to Charles, the connection to God has led him ironically and paradoxically to a reconnection with himself and who he is. Do you see that? In giving up myself, I receive myself. This is a different man, transformed by the movement of the poet's mind. So the outward movement of love, Will Christie calls it self-effacing love, transforms the self in the giving up of the self He's gained the self back. Where we were sulky, in the darkness, where things are only speckled. Do you remember that? All those dark images, like the previous dark mood. Now look at these images of light. Have a look at that stanza. Have a look at that. Pale beneath the blaze hung the transparent foliage. Now I can see. I watched some broad and sunny leaf. I mean, I could go on and on. Love to see the shadow of the leaf and stamp above, dappling its sunshine. We could go on and on and on. Where previously we had dark, now we have sun. And on and on he goes, referencing the shining light of this moment, which is, of course, both the sun itself, which is the original act of creation in Genesis, right? And God. And it is a representation of the poet's imagination at work. 
Because has he moved? What's actually happened? Nothing. Where's the action been? It's been here. This is where the action's been. In the transformative movement of the human mind is actually where the transformation has been. And one more observation, just to glory in Coleridge's achievement here. The last images he leaves us with is the rook. The speaker looks up at the very end. I should read it actually. Can we go to, after a delight comes sudden on my heart, I'm gonna to go to my favorite image. My gentle hearted Charles, this is the last eight lines. When the last rook beat its straight path along the dusky air homewards, I blessed it. Deeming its black wing, now a dim speck, now vanishing in light, had crossed the mighty orb's dilated glory while thou stoodst gazing. Or when all was still, flew creaking o'er thy head and had a charm for thee, my gentle-hearted Charles, to whom no sound is dissonant, which tells of life. It's so beautiful. <laughs> the last images he leaves us with is this rook, a blackbird, usually an omen of death. It's got a dissonant cry. We're all Australians, right? We've listened to that, you know? Yeah. He sees this black rook and he looks up. Now, presumably Charles, as he looks up, can see the same sky, right? They're under the same sky. They can't see in front of them the same thing, but they share the same sky. They look up, right? And they see this, the black rook flies, as I've gotten this image here, into the line of sight that is the sun. And you all would know what Coleridge is talking about. The light is so complete that it swallows up the black speck that is the rook. Unity, death and life become one. Just as in this poem, the upwards and the downwards have become one. The in and the out have become one. The rook is swallowed up by that dilated glory, life and light. The two come together in unity, just as Charles and the poet come together in unity as they look at the same view. Does that make sense? So nature actually facilitates the coming together of these two men, even though they're not in the same space. Just like the poet who was dissonant and creaking at the beginning of the poem, in that first stanza, the shining light of love swallows him up in creation. Now, it's tempting, of course, particularly late on a Friday night, to sit back and think two things after reading a poem like that. First, okay, pretty clever, yep. It's cute, isn't it? Like, it's all very matchy-matchy. And he's clearly done his homework. The structure's cute. I haven't even gone into the rhythm and the rhyme. That's pretty mind-blowing. But secondly, that's nice. But isn't it just cute? Like, what does this actually do? What, what, does, what does reading poetry actually do for a human being who's fumbling around trying to find what it is that is miraculous about being a human being? Does it actually affect anything in our world at all? Now, it's at this point I want to come back to the notion of this being a conversation poem. That backwards and forwards motion of the rhythm mimics the backwards and forwards motion of conversation between human beings, as I said, intimately sharing the fact of their being, the fact of our living together in this moment in 2019 together. Coleridge 
speaks to us, right? He's writing in the late 1700s and he speaks to us in 2019. And as we read his poem, we're taken out of ourselves in this temporal moment. We follow his journey. We see that rook. We are invited out of our own solitude and our own temporal moment and self-interest into the vision that Coleridge paints for us, if momentarily, if momentarily. Just as Coleridge paints for us, just as God painted the world, we come together. So yes, Coleridge and Charles are united in poetry, but also the poet and the reader of poetry are united across time into the one moment. So the other unification is this, a very bright, tortured poet, he had his foibles, writing in the late 1700 and us here in 2019. The poetry unifies across temporal lines, across temporal distance, just as God's creation unifies us with him. The shalom or the connectedness that Coleridge is talking about here, where he connects the natural world with his friend Charles, with God, extends beyond that moment in time and reaches to another kind of brotherhood with us here, sisterhood, I should say. It's not just for us to witness this moment, but to participate in it. We participate in this poem, just as we work together and read this and push past it. So Coleridge reaches and pushes past the foliage of his kind of locked off world to find God through the natural world and his fellow human beings. It's extraordinary, right? It certainly made me sit up and pay attention to my world, lest God was speaking to me through it this afternoon. But I want to leave you with one more thing tonight to help us understand Coleridge's theological vision. You might have heard this famous passage, and it's a little much on a Friday night, but I don't think I can get away with talking about Coleridge without talking about it. Most of Coleridge's poetry was written in one year, if you can believe that. All his famous poetry was written in one year. And then he spent the rest of his time alive here on this earth trying to work out what on earth had happened in that miraculous year and what about the poet's imagination was so transformative. And he wrote this in his Biographia Literaria. The imagination then I consider either as primary or secondary. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. And as a repetition in the infinite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. The secondary imagination I consider as an echo of the former, coexisting with, with the conscious will, yet still as identical with the primary in the kind of its agency and differing only in degree and in the mode of its operation. It dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate. Or where this process is rendered impossible, yet still at all events it struggles to idealise and to unify. It is essentially vital. And you should hear, I suppose, the etymology of the word vital, which means life. It is essentially vital. Even as all objects as objects are essentially fixed and dead. If you like the poetry better than the essay, <laughs> it's a little bit more approachable, right? When I read this as a girl, 
when Dad was trying to drag me through my HSE, as I said, I was fascinated by two things. I think I immediately went to the imagery in this passage of the burning bush. Did you see that? The infinite I am. I am who I am. I am isness. There's nothing more to say. I am isness. That is my name. And I saw the connection that Coleridge is making between the power of God's imagination and our imagination as makers. When we make, whether that be a cup of tea, whether that be a meal, whether that be a sculpture, whether that be poetry, we are participating in that great act of making in the beginning of Genesis, right? I got that at that time. And I understood, I think, what an extraordinary statement in and of itself that is, right? Imagine being able to participate in that. But what I did not understand that I now want to grasp, because I think this speaks to what we are doing here in this room in this moment, is exactly what he thought the imagination was. As a girl, I think I read it as a modern woman, and I understood it like this. The human imagination is something that makes up stuff that wasn't there before. Would you say broadly that's, that's how we understand it? We make up genuinely new stuff that didn't exist. I don't think I had that right, because if you look at this really, really closely, that's not the definition of the imagination that he's banging on about. The imagination here unifies disparate elements and brings them together into a whole that makes sense, into a whole that has meaning. And in the Genesis account, that's exactly what God does. He brings order to, what is it? Tohu vavohu? Chaos. Yeah. So here, the human imagination is what coheres and orders and unifies what is disparate, right? And the first thing I want to say is that central to the ability to do that is this phrase, human perception, human perception. All of us here gathered around this poem, what are we doing together here? What are we doing as Christians? What are we doing as we perceive using our ears, our eyes? We are perceiving. We are trying to make sense of things. We are ordering. That's what we're doing. All the minds in this room are moving at this moment in time. And we are making meaning out of what is here. So we participate in Coleridge's act of creation just as he participates in God's act of creation. Can you see the little interconnected relationships here? Right, it's mind blowing. It's almost like fractals, I suppose. First, this means that we must come to this discussion with some sense, and I'm going to use a big word here, but hermeneutic agency. That's a big fancy way of saying how we understand things, right? How do we make any sense of these black squiggles on the page? How do we do that? Our human minds perform just as great a miracle as the Coleridge who wrote them down. We order, we make something out of it. We meet him in the middle in this meeting place of the poem. What we perceive, and, here's, and here it gets even kind of mind-bendier than that. I'm thinking of, is it Alice Walker, the colour purple? Have I got her name right? 
sorry, I'm so tired, I'm messing it up, but there's this lovely moment in The Colour Purple where, do you all know the story? Celie and Suge, and they're beaten down, the pair of them. Suge is, Celie has just, she's been raped, she's been sold, she's been, like, it's just, it, it, it could not be more awful. And Suge, similarly, has been beaten down, but she's this kind of flash singer. It's been a while since I've read this, so this is reaching back through memory. And Celie says, I don't believe in God. And Suge says, what? Are you serious? I'm not going to attempt to do an African-American accent here. And Suge says, haven't you seen The Colour Purple? Haven't you seen The Colour Purple? And Celie says, what are you talking about? And then Suge says, when you see The Colour Purple, that's God making a pass at you. And Celie says, well, what if I don't notice The Colour Purple? And Suge says, well, he just keeps making things until you do, until you do notice. <laughs> so what I understand that little moment to be about is that what we perceive and the way we respond to this creation which is alive actually makes things live, right? Our perception is what is. That's how important it is that we pay attention. God's creation is not fully whole unless we see and unify and bring it into being, just as this poem is dead in the water unless we read it and puzzle over it. Does that make sense? It's, it's a bit trippy, isn't it? It struggles to idealise and to unify. And I suppose that word unify I want to get at in terms of what I'll call that hermeneutic coming together of reader and writer. We see the power of the poet's imagination bringing together the like and the unlike. If we can go back to the poem, actually, one thing I didn't talk about, which I didn't actually talk about with any of my students, but while I was preparing for it tonight, I was like, oh, look at that. If you go back to the second stanza, richly a burn, ye clouds, there's one. Live in the yellow light, ye distant groves, there's the second one. And kindle thou blue ocean. Can you see what he's doing there? Can you see the pattern? Can you see how he's bringing together the opposites, the unlikely together? Just as reader and writer come together, in a miracle, you've got burn clouds. Clouds don't burn. But in the moment of a sunset, they do. Do you see what I mean? Fire and water, boom, into a sunset. It's transformed. And in the second one, live in the yellow light, ye distant groves. Groves are hidden. They're dark. But live in the yellow light. Right? And then in this next one, and kindle thou blue ocean. Now, we understand what he's talking about because... We saw that beautiful little image of the boat lighting up the ocean. And you've all seen the ocean on fire, right, as the sun goes down. But when you look at it, he's bringing together these two opposites in a moment of unification, right? Which stands in for the ways in which our human perception brings into being God's creation in a fuller way. <gasps> Can you believe that? Like, we're not just here to kind of swan around, but to actually participate as we perceive. The poet brings together across time and space the reader and the writer. What I now grapple with as an adult reader is that my very powers are called on here as I read this poem. 
It's not just Coleridge who gets the heyday here, who gets the glory for this. If human perception is the primary function of imagination, then my powers to perceive that image as it is given to me, as we have now just done, is requiring me to use precisely that faculty that Coleridge is exercising himself. We are joined together. Our faculties are in communion, are in shalom. And in so doing, God makes the world anew, right? Even as we participate in it. I think I'll stop there, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me.